choices you make in determining your child's treatment are completely at your own discretion. Dr. Doreen Grand is the Dr. Doreen is an expert in autism. Doreen Grand Dr. Grand Dr. Doreen Grand Dr. Doreen Grand is a visionary in the field of autism. Now you can ask her questions on Ask Dr. Doreen. Good morning and welcome to Ask Dr. Doreen. I'm Shannon Penrod and I'm here with the fabulous, the wonderful Dr. Doreen Grampichet and she's here to answer your questions. I hear that music and it's like, it's my favorite time of the week. Uh, so, good morning, Shannon. Good morning. For those of you who have never watched the show before and each week there's more and more of you watching, Dr. Doreen Grampichet is a true expert in the field of autism, I believe the preeminent expert in the field in any time, not just this time, but she's amazing. And despite uh, her skin tone and, and how well her skin looks, she's been working in this field for over 40, four zero years, more than 40 plus years working with individuals on the spectrum, their families, everything from very small babies up through senior citizens, helping them to achieve things that are important to them. Uh, we're saying good morning already live here to Christina and other people have written in as well. I don't necessarily have your names, but we're thrilled that you guys are watching us live for the next there. Zora, um, thrilled that you guys are here. The chat is open right now and we're taking live questions for the next hour. We're live on Facebook, on YouTube, on Twitter, and about a dozen other sites that Traven is showing to you right now. Laurie is saying good morning and so is Ellen. We're so thrilled that you're all here with us uh, this morning. We do ask that you write in and be as specific as possible with your questions. Dr. Doreen is here to answer your questions as many as we can get through. Be as specific as possible, but we do give the disclaimer that there is no expert in any field, let alone this field, that could give individual specific advice in this particular format, right? Because she doesn't have eyes on the situation and it would be a disservice to the individuals on the spectrum if... Uh, you know, we pretended otherwise. So we're just going to be mindful of that. Ask as many questions as you want. Be as specific as possible. You'll get to take a tour of Dr. Grampichet's lovely brain because uh, she knows so much uh, about this subject. And then you can take that information back to the expert that has eyes on the situation. But uh, Miriam just wrote in and says, does, does Dr. Doreen see clients overseas over Zoom? It's uh, a good question. I don't know that we've answered that before. Uh, yeah. Um, first of all, good morning, everyone. Um, Shannon, thank you so much for the introduction. And uh, yes, I do see patients over Zoom um, and I would be happy to schedule something and try to give you some um, guidance, like kind of more personal guidance. But I do also see that Maryam had a question that she had written in earlier today. And I think she had written that she lives in London and she has an IEP for her daughter tomorrow. Um, and her daughter is 18 and pre-verbal. Um, and I see that you have been given speech and occupational therapy and you're asking what other services. And I would highly recommend uh, that you request applied behavior analysis, ABA. That's the number one service that I would recommend for you. Um, and that will help your child uh, learn 
whatever they need at this point, whether it is communication or uh, adaptive skills or safety skills or even academic skills. So I would make sure that you get a BCBA, which is a board certified behavior analyst um, who can give advice. Uh, usually schools in the U.S., I'm not sure exactly in uh, uh, the U.K., but in the U.S., uh, nowadays a lot of schools have a BCBA that they consult with. Um, but if your school doesn't, I believe that you can uh, ask them to find one. Um, and it is kind of important to have a BCBA involved because uh, they will kind of know exactly how to use the various procedures that are have been shown to be very, very effective in teaching individuals on the spectrum. Amazing. Uh, I also want to say that Hendy wrote in this morning before we got started and said, I'm new immigrant with my autistic nine-year-old son in Florida. When I went to register him in an autism school, they redirected me to elementary public school. Why uh, is it that my son can't be in autism school? And what steps will be done for him after the individual plan is set? I know that there is a class in that elementary public school for autistic students, but isn't it preferable that he be registered in the autism school, please advise. Also, he loves swimming. Can the school provide him with this sport activity? Really, really good question um, and great opportunity for us to talk about that a little bit. So depending on how your child is doing, uh, one or the other might be more appropriate for him. I, uh, you know, do we have the age of nine years, I believe, in Florida? So, you know, if your child has received services up till now, for instance, and or uh, they have a lot of skills, they they just are, are minimally affected by the autism, let's say. then in that case, you probably do want your child in the regular education public school because they will benefit from being around other typically developing children. Uh, They will um, model after those children. Uh, They will play with those children. They will learn social behavior and interaction um, and so on. But if your child uh, has more delays, for instance, let's say they have a lot of hyperactivity and they really can't sit still and pay attention or Uh, They have already fallen behind academically and nine would be, let's say, second or third grade. And so they wouldn't do well in uh, academically in those settings. Or let's say they don't have good language or social comprehension, so they wouldn't be able to really benefit. Then perhaps, still perhaps, you want to look at the autism classroom. Here are the pros and cons of uh, a classroom that is just dedicated to autism. Uh, Some of the pros would include that you'll have a lower ratio. So you'll have more teachers to students. So almost every student will have either a teacher or an aide, right? So a child in an autism classroom will probably get a lot more attention and uh, there will be you know, it'll be easier for them to get guidance and support. Um, The curriculum will have been modified and will have been made uh, a lot simpler. 
Um, and so there are clearly benefits to, for some children. Uh, however, there's also some downside to being in a classroom that is pure autism. One is you have other children and the other children may have other behaviors that your child, challenging behaviors that your child might start to mimic or copy. Uh, that happens really frequently. Um, so that's one problem. The other problem is that you know, in general, my thinking is that you always want to push the child as far as you can. You want to reward them as well, but you want to hold them up and you want to support them and teach them and guide them and uh, get them to the point where they're doing the maximum they possibly can do, right? Because uh, that will help them thrive in life. I mean, we do that with all kids. And so usually in special education classrooms or autism classrooms, that isn't the case. It's almost like people have kind of um, concluded that if you have a diagnosis of autism, we're not going to push you. We're just going to let you be. And as long as you don't make a noise or make trouble, everything's fine. And we expect this to kind of go on for the rest of your life. I don't believe in that. I have a kind of a very different uh, thinking about that. I think that all individuals on the spectrum can learn. There is no question in my mind. And so if we're not making every attempt to teach the individual, push them, guide them, give them opportunities to be more independent, uh, to catch up with their peers, if we don't do those things, they're not going to live to their highest potential. So that's the reason that I, I don't often recommend autism classrooms. I will if I find that there isn't an, a, a normal education, a regular education classroom where our child can get support. Then it becomes something that I would look at. Now, you're in Florida, and generally speaking in the States, there's a whole um, kind of hierarchy that we call, um, and it has to do with the least restrictive environment. And the hierarchy kind of, the least restrictive environment being regular education, no aid, right? I mean, you're there on your own. There's no restrictions at all. And that goes, and then the next step is a regular education with an aid who is assigned to your child and potentially some pullout as well, where your child, like let's say they have a difficulty in certain classes, they can be pulled out and then go to special ed or go and get one-to-one -one during that time frame. And that hierarchy goes all the way down to kind of special education only. And so the, the idea is put your child in the classroom that is perhaps a little bit higher than their level so that they can grow into that and that with support they can succeed and, and, and grow. Yes, Amanda, we're welcoming Amanda and her blue hearts. She just wrote in and said, yes, and some schools have teachers about you saying that they don't push them in the autism classrooms. Uh, and some teachers have belief that parents are not going to inquire about progress. That's why I just pulled him out initially, gave them three chances combined with infractions in diet, and I don't, I didn't have a choice. Yeah. Um, you know, sometimes it's really difficult, but it is important that parents... You know, you make a plan and you do your level best to make a plan. And we have a whole playlist with Bonnie Yates, who's a special education attorney, where we've done videos for years where she talks about things that you might ask for in an IEP um, to, that, you know, it's supposed to be individualized, but 
sometimes parents are like, well, I don't know. Like, I don't even know what to ask. So that yeah. playlist on our YouTube page, really good. It's, it's called Know Your Rights with Bonnie Yates. You can go there and look. But I, one of the things that I always caution parents is once you get the IEP in place, don't just assume that they're going to do the IEP. you got to check in, hold them accountable to what's in the IEP. And sometimes something happens and you have to change the IEP. So I, what really helped to me at some point was somebody said to me, think of this as a very fluid thing. Get as much in writing as you can, follow the plan, see if it works. And if it doesn't, be willing to change it and be willing to go to the school and say, it's time to change it. Yeah. It's I don't know if it's ever going to be perfect, but if we, I love the phrase that you say all the time, Dr. Grampy-Shea, I try to live by this now because I've heard you say it so many times, do enough and I'm going to get it wrong. So you tell me how you say it, but do it. If you do good things over and over, then, then good things will happen. So, um, you know, and I, sometimes when it's like, ah, I don't know what to do. I go, well, let's just do good things over and over and over and good things will happen. Um, doesn't mean that we have to get it perfect. Um, so thank you, Amanda, for writing in. We're also saying hi to Johanny who's writing in from Philadelphia. So thrill and Parker is with us as well. Zora wrote in at the beginning of the hour and said, what would you describe as an autism friendly co-working space? What a question. Wow. That's an awesome question. So I assume that I just want to make sure I'm understanding the question. Um, so you're talking about an adult who is, uh, and, and how do you make an environment uh, kind of friendly or appropriate to accommodate an adult who's working in this environment, right? And it's, it's a really great uh, question. And it's fortunately, thank God, I mean, I just love the fact that this has now become an issue um, where some of the larger companies have actually asked me and I've done training for some of these very, very big companies like Oracle, for instance, where they have you know thousands of employees. And finally, their HR departments of some of these larger companies are paying attention and saying, hey, there are lots of individuals with autism who have not only should, should join our workforce, but they even have a specific talents that we would like to benefit from. And how do we make the workplace uh, more accommodating to them? So there's a lot of different things. And, and I'll just go through and kind of talk a little bit about the different things that I've suggested to some of these larger companies. First of all, every individual on the spectrum, as you all know, is different, right? So you have to make this a little bit more, there's some things that are general and then some things that are more personalized, right? For example, in general, it would be really good if there's a lot of structure in the job. So every individual will benefit from knowing exactly what is expected of them, exactly what their schedule is, uh, exactly what their due dates are, all this kind of stuff. And in particular, it would be lovely if they could have a coach or a mentor with whom they could meet every day, every week, whatever the company can can, uh, afford or offer. Um, And that individual would be able to go through, answer any of their questions ahead of time and also guide them and say, you know, these are the great things that you did last week. 
And these are the things that you probably want to be working on next week. And let me tell you, this is not just applicable to individuals on the spectrum. If a company can provide this kind of feedback to its employees, I guarantee you all employees will love this because it's, <laughs> because it's very frequent guidance and feedback and attention, right? And, and the thing that I think most employees don't like and the reason that most employees leave is because they don't get attention and nobody listens. They feel like no one's listening. No one's giving me feedback. I don't know how to improve my work, et cetera, et cetera. So providing that kind of coaching is, I think, one of the most important things. Now, in addition, it would be really important to look at the specific needs of the individual. In general, we have a lot of individuals who have sensory issues, right? They, they're dysregulated from a sensory perspective. So how nice would it be if there was a quiet lounge where the individual could actually leave their job, their desk, go to this lounge, maybe put on some headphones for lunch break and relax and be able to kind of compose themselves again. So that is kind of an important thing. Secondly, it would if the individual has, if we're aware of or can determine the specific sensory issues they have, for example, someone is very, very sensitive to the sound of doors opening and closing, then make sure we're not putting their desk right in front of uh, a... Oh, did you lose us? We still have yeah, you. Yeah, you still have me. Great, great. Yes, okay, I, I think I'm, that's perfect. I'm going to try to uh, keep going then. Can you still hear me? Yep, we still can hear you. Great, right, great, right, great, right, great. Oh. oh, and now we have an echo. I think I'm on twice. There we go. So basically, uh, it would be important. Like, I remember actually, we had someone working at Card who had this issue where their desk was right in front of the bathroom area, right? And it was so distracting to this individual because people kept going in and out, in and out, and the person could not focus on their own work because it was very distracting. There's a lot of things like that that we can pay attention to. I mean, this applies, Shannon, as you know, to also classrooms, right? Yes. And the position of the person is so important for what they attend to. And by the way, that also goes to other things like accommodations that are made in the classroom can also be made in the workspace, the individual could be given, like, you know how in the workspace, if you have back problems, they'll give you a standing desk, for instance. Well, the individual with autism could request uh, a noise-canceling headphones, or they could request that their booth be surrounded, or that they don't have fluorescent lighting right above their head, or all these types of things that are disturbing to them from a sensory perspective. So let's try to make the work environment peaceful let's try and, and welcoming, uh, accommodate that for the individual, and then uh, give them a coach who is going to help them organize their schedule, understand what is coming next, understand kind of, you know, what are the expectations and, and when they're due, how to even make a calendar for themselves or how to read a calendar and so on. And then, of course, as, as with anything else, the content of their job, right? So if it requires, and most of our folks are very, very good with technology, but I find that even in uh, a lot of work environments, people are put in positions where they really don't know 
their job. Like they don't know, not a lot of people don't know how to make an Excel worksheet uh, or how to, you know, move things around on an Outlook or invite people to Zoom or just basic things like that, right? And making sure that all of that information is reviewed and taught so that the person is actually in a, in a place where they feel comfortable with what they're doing and it's rewarding, right? So all of these things, you know, giving the individual the ability to be able to ask for what is important to them uh, and, and just making sure that the job is rewarding. I think those, that's what I would consider a good workplace. I love that. I, I love that you said the truth, which is doing these accommodations would make it happier place for all employees. Everyone. And I also, you know, one of the things that years ago when they started having Julia on Sesame Street and we had the puppeteer um, yeah. that plays Julia on and she is a mom of someone who's on the spectrum. And I, I remember we were saying we were talking with her and we said, you know, the amaz- most amazing thing about this is that in 30 years time, the mm-hmm. HR directors are all going to be kids who watch Julia on Sesame Street and it won't be odd or strange or weird for them to make an accommodation they'll just be like oh that's what this individual needs and i think that's what we need more than anything else is people who are willing in the hr departments who are willing to listen and willing to make accommodations we have that in some places now i mean obviously look at people like dr stephen shore who's been a college professor forever but he attributes that to the fact that you know he can't stand fluorescent lights over his head, like they make him crazy. And when he started to teach, he said, I'm going to need to wear a baseball hat while I teach. Yep. And and it was a time when you didn't wear hats indoors. I I know I'm dating myself here, but you know, that was considered, you know, lack of respect. Yeah. And, and certainly a college professor would not wear a baseball hat while teaching. And his college said, is that what you need to make it work? Go for it. And look at him. He said this illustrious career and and what would have happened if they didn't. So, you know, I I love everything that you said, but I, I, I love the idea of us all being accommodating um, and, and putting that set of lenses on for everyone would be a better world. Absolutely. Amazing. Now, Christina has written in and said that my son is often sleeping an hour after taking his meds. Not always. Um, he does take Waffensine. I'm going to say these names wrong for ADHD. He has a combined type. And he also is on Desmorprison for diabetes mm-hmm. insipidus. Uh, would this be something that would cause this? Um, I'm going to be the, the, and make him tired. Or is it just because he moves all the time and it's just a coincidence? What are your thoughts? There was a little bit more. Let me see if I can find mm-hmm. it. Uh, also trying to wean him onto a lower dose of laxatives. So far, the lower dose is working. I think that's everything. Mm. Well, there's a lot going on here. So it's possible the medication that he's taking for the diabetes the the is if i'm not wrong it's an antidiuretic and it will make him a little bit weak muscle weakness but i'm not sure that it would make him lethargic and that he would fall asleep right away given that he's also on a laxative i would want to make sure that you are having his physician just check his electrolytes pretty regularly perhaps you can get him on uh, just something like pedialyte or gatorade and see if that helps him a little bit we is so often people 
actually faint or pass out and we think it's something really serious and it's just an imbalance of electrolytes. So, um, but if he is kind of falling asleep right away, uh, you know, have his physician do a blood test and check and make sure that he's not low iron or his electrolytes are, are balanced because none of these meds are things like sedative. They don't have a sedative effect. So um, that's kind of what I suggest. Okay. Uh, Dina says, my child, three years old, wakes up in the middle of the night between 2 a.m. to 4.30 a.m., especially around when there is a full moon. Any suggestions? <laughs> yeah. So, of course, the first thing I would suggest is to make sure his environment remains dark, right? So sometimes if there's a full moon and if your blinds are not blackout, then he might actually, his room might become very, very light. I don't know. But I know personally, if there's light outside my room, I will wake up. I'm very sensitive to, to the morning sun. So uh, make sure that his room remains dark. That's one thing. And then the second thing is, I wonder what do you do when he wakes up? Right. Because a lot of times our kids get into a habit of waking up because when they wake up, they come to our room and sometimes we are too tired to do anything about it. So we kind of let them snuggle with us for the rest of the night um, or maybe we give them a drink. Uh, all of these things encourage the child to keep waking up. It's not even that it encourages. It's a actually a physiological uh, kind of conditioning. If you wake up and you have, let's say, a drink of milk, uh, your body is going to learn that it should wake up at that time every day, every night. So the question I have is, what do you do? And the, the biggest thing you could do is to really start teaching him not to come out of his bed um, and, you know, not to, let, let's say, eat or drink something, but rather to just try to start going back to sleep. Perhaps there's a uh, way that you can, you know, have something for him where he just presses a button and he listens to music, something calming, soothing, and see if you can break the habit. But you can also write in and tell us more about what has normally been done when he wakes up. Okay. Another thing Shen, that comes to my mind real quick is that a lot of people use melatonin and melatonin has this weird cycle where it'll put you to sleep right away, but it'll actually wake you up about between four to six hours after you went to sleep. So that let us know if, if you're using melatonin, because that could also be one of the things that's happening. There we go. And I missed the part where Christina, the follow-up, Christina said, how can I get more speech therapy and OT for my son? Currently, he only gets one 30-minute session a week. Uh, it's not enough. Yeah, no, of course. And Christina, of course, you can either ask your school district through an IEP or you can uh, find uh, a provider and actually have them bill your insurance because all of those services should be covered now. 
There you go. Um, okay. Uh, Mariam said, thank you, Shannon and Dr. Doreen. How can I contact Dr. Doreen for Zoom consultation? Great question. Probably the best way, and tell me if I'm wrong, is if you write directly to me and then yeah. I can farm the question where it needs to go. So anytime you guys have a question or something that you want to get to Dr. Grampiche, you can write to me at Shannon at autism-live.com. That's Shannon, S-H-A-N-N-O-N, at autism. You guys all know how to spell that. Then there is a hyphen, which is the dash, and then live, L-I-V as in Victor, E.com, for those of you listening in podcast. Uh, now, Johanny has written in something that has me sort of stumped and, and bewildered. She said, our BCBA at school doesn't specialize in ABA and she has the little scream emoji or the face plant emoji. Uh, excuse me. I, both would apply. I, is that, I'm sure that, that that's what they have said to her, but that makes me cringe and want to run with my hair on fire. Is that even a possibility that you can be a BCBA and not be educated in ABA? No, uh, because BCBA stands for board certified behavior analyst, which means your education is ABA. It is possible, Jahani, that your BCBA doesn't specialize in autism, use of ABA for autism, which is almost just as ridiculous, to be honest, because like, you know, the the biggest use of ABA is autism treatment. But there are people who are trained in ABA, but what they do is they work on things like, you know, how do we improve employee uh, uh, productivity, or uh, there's a lot of ABA people who, for instance, work on animal studies. Uh, But ABA in general is a teaching technique. It's weird if someone works in a school district and says, hey, you know, I don't have specialty in this, because that is mostly the reason you're there. And schools will say things. And, and in fact, Parker's, oh, yeah. written in a, Parker's written in a big, long thing about how much of a hassle it is at school and how people can do things that are not that what is actually right for the individual. Like that part we're very well aware of and versed in, and you guys are too. And, and so I do, I wonder if you want to say a couple of words about that, Dr. Grampiche, because I, I think a lot of us, when we, when our kids were first diagnosed, we were like, we don't know what to do. And then, yeah. and people were like, oh, well, don't worry. You have a meeting coming up with the school district and the school district will take care of you. I'm a former teacher who worked in public schools yeah. and I should have known better, but I was like, oh, thank goodness. The school is going to come to the rescue and yeah. they would never try to screw my child out of having something that he has coming to him. That could never happen. And I swear to you, it's like the biggest disappointment in my life that I I still to this day keep meeting people who actively try to make sure that our kids don't get what they need because they're afraid of something. I don't know what, but it makes me full on nuts. Totally right. And you're right. And I hate to do this because I I, I just don't, I never want to like, you know, I I don't want to generalize, right? And I don't want to say every school, but we, I guess those of us who've been in the field for a really long time and, and parents who've, who've, who have adult children who've been in the world of autism for a long time, like Shannon, we have not had positive experiences with schools. Let's just start there. I mean, I, I guess the first uh, time that I testified 
uh, for a parent and against a school district would have been like early 1990s, like 92 or something. And it's just astonishing to me that the you know so much effort was put into getting legal uh, help from the school district so that they would just win that one particular case as opposed to putting that money into trying to improve their programs yeah. now having said that there are some schools that have pretty good programs and they have learned it has improved to some extent but in general uh, i don't think most of us think, as Shannon said, I think we go into it thinking the school's going to help me. They're going to tell me what to do. They're going to guide me. Same thing with like our health insurance. We think I have health insurance. Someone's going to tell me what to do and they're going to pay for it. And unfortunately, in the world of autism, it's very contentious. So a lot of schools will generally try to uh, reduce the services that they provide. That's been my experience. Um, just because, you know, it's costly. Um, and, uh, and, and health insurance will generally try to do the same thing because it's costly. I mean, it's, so it becomes about money rather than about uh, what does your child need. Uh, because the truth is that your child will benefit, whether they're two or 20, um, they're going to benefit from a one-to-one behavioral teacher, someone who is trained in ABA, who is teaching them using the techniques of ABA, um, whether they're teaching them speech or adaptive or academic or whatever it might be. And, and, and it doesn't matter, like I said, if they're two years old or 20 years old, it, it doesn't matter. These techniques work, period. Um, the, the issue is that it is expensive, and people of all, whoever is responsible for paying is always going to try to say, no, your child doesn't need it. Why don't we just give them some sort of group instruction? Um, or, you know, why don't we, maybe we can just like have them do it on their own, or they don't need a special aid. They don't need a one-to-one. They don't need uh, any kind of additional related services, all that sort of stuff. So, Make sure that they give you a piece of paper when you go to an IEP that lists your your rights. And uh, don't ignore that paper. Read that paper because your child has a lot of rights and you have a lot of rights. You can call for an IEP, an emergency IEP. You don't have to wait for them. You can call for an IEP anytime you want. You have the right to uh, record the IEP so that you can use that information later on. You have so many different rights. And and the more you know about it, the more you can help your child receive the services they are due. Yeah. And somebody wrote back in and said, we didn't really address the the swimming uh, question about, you know, the child likes to swim, can the school pay for it? And, you know, here's the thing is that there is no definitive you know, your child can get these services because it's supposed to be individualized. So I'm of the mindset, you know, ask, ask, because sometimes a school district will say, why, yes, we do have a swimming program and we will pay for that. A lot of times they'll say we don't have that program, but sometimes they'll pay for it. If you can find it in a different place, if you can prove that it's something that's good for your child, it's a, this is why I always advocate that people find two support groups that are online, not that you have to go to physically because that's just too hard, especially right now, but two support groups, one that's local 
write in your, they'll still tell you like, who's the good dentist? Who's the place to go get your hair cut, right? You know, you can ask people, what, what have you guys gotten at, on your IEPs, right? But then I always advocate for getting one that's a little bit more global so you can get specific about my child does this. Mm-hmm. Has anybody else seen this? And how did you get swimming from your school? And sometimes they'll give you ideas that may or may not work in your district, but it, knowledge is power. And yeah. we have to band together on yeah. this. Yeah. There are schools, as you said, like something like swimming is very simple. If the school has, let's say, a swimming program, as Shannon said, then they have to offer it to your child as well. And they have to produce accommodations if necessary. Uh, If they don't have a swimming program, you can still request it if you can prove that the swimming is something that is necessary for him. For instance, an OT could say, He needs swimming every day in order to regulate his body. And in that case, they would have to pay a swim instructor and him to go to a swimming place in order to get that service. Yeah, it's amazing what people have accomplished. I want to switch, though, to our friend Paula, who wrote in and said, Hi, ladies, my 17-year-old ASD son with anxiety struggles with socializing. He has a learning disability, which adds to his struggles in trying to make sense of situations. I'm trying to get him out and about a bit, uh, bit by bit, trying to build his confidence. Social clubs are really difficult. And he doesn't enjoy it. He's constantly on edge. People are saying that I should make him go. How do I make him go to a situation that he finds so difficult? What are your thoughts on this? And she sends X's. Yeah. Thank you. That's a great question, Paula. Let me give you some additional suggestions that might work. I don't know. First of all, I would always, 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 when I hear that someone has anxiety, I want to focus on that for a minute. Um, I, we tend to ignore anxiety and depression when they're not extremely severe and we shouldn't do that. We should deal with them at whatever level they're at before they get severe. So when you say he has anxiety, then my question becomes, and I don't know his functioning level, but are you doing anything about that? because there's a lot to be done. You can have medications that help with anxiety. You can alter his diet. You can have him talk to a therapist and who would work with him and do cognitive behavioral therapy type of activities. Let's help him overcome his anxiety. So that's number one on its own. Now the issue of social So it's funny because we often think that our kids should, like we just throw them into a social environment, any child, typically developing even, and, you know, they'll be fine and they'll start socializing. So let me tell you, if I personally was taken to a social environment where there's a lot of people there and they're all chatting and so on, I would last maybe five minutes. I'm not someone who can handle just a social group. Okay. I, that's not the way I socialize. People socialize in different ways. So first of all, find out what is his interest? What are his areas of strength? If you see a group of kids socializing in a robotics group, that is completely different than a group of kids socializing in a dance group. So we have to find out what he's into. And then whatever that is, let's strengthen that 
alone. Don't worry about other people first. Let's strengthen that. Let's get him into that so that he enjoys that activity. Then find a club or even just one other person who's also interested in that activity. And that's how you start the social activity. It, the activity has to be of interest, especially when you're talking about, uh, you know, teens or people, the teenage years are difficult to begin with. So uh, that's how, how I suggest you do it. Don't worry about trying to force them to go to some um, social activity that is that already exists. Find one that has his uh, niche in it. I super, super love that advice. Uh, now, Dina wrote back in, she's the one that had the child who was getting up in the middle of the night. Yeah. And she said, and you asked some questions. So she sent some answers. He is wide awake and stays with dad and me and gets up to eat and drink. Yes. Yeah. Uh, oh. She also says he's already on melatonin and many people wrote in. And I like, I am amazed how many people wrote in and said, that parasites during full moon cycles get uh, more prevalent. Um, interesting. It's very interesting. Yeah, and I'll have to read up on that. But I, what I want to say about this child then particularly is you got to change all of those habits, like all of that. He should not be coming in and staying with you and dad. He should not be getting food and so on when he wakes up in the middle of the night. And it's going to be tough. And because he's on melatonin, melatonin has this cycle that will wake you. Um, so either you need to talk to his physician and increase his melatonin dose or the physician can also give you something like Benadryl on a very low dose that you take with the melatonin, and then he will sleep through. Um, there's also now even time-release types of melatonin. So <clears throat> you want to talk to his physician about that. But in terms of how you manage it when he wakes up, it's going to be tough. I won't lie. There's going to be a few nights of no sleep, but it's important that you stay in his he stays in his room and you can stay with him initially, but you will eventually have to fade yourself out and he stays in his bed. And um, then there will be no real motivation or reinforcement for waking up. Um, the moon thing, I will definitely look into this whole concept of parasites and how they would interact with the, the moon cycle. Uh, but again, it, at least initially, uh, make sure that it, his room remains dark. Yeah. I, you know, this is one of those things. It's super hard and it takes a while because sleep changing sleep cycles change. But I, I can remember when my son was six weeks old, six weeks old. And, and everybody had said to me while I was pregnant, you know, the baby that is in your belly is the baby that comes out. So if you're up at two o'clock in the morning, don't be surprised when you're pregnant. Don't be surprised if your baby is up at two o'clock in the morning. I just couldn't do the math on that while I was pregnant. I don't know why. And then the baby came out and then I understood the equation instantly. Yeah. And, but then I remember going at six weeks to the doctor's office for the six week checkup. And he gave me exactly this advice, Dr. Grampy He said, you know, when he, you know, the way that you get a baby to sleep through the night is that when he wakes up, there is no party. You make it as dull as it can possibly be. Yeah. If you're snuggling and rocking, then he's going to make sure that he wakes up for that. And that child just becomes an older yeah. child becomes an adult. 
Um, and, and if fun things are happening in the middle of the night, we would all wake up and party. Right. Because that's the good time. There's no, mom is not on the phone. Dad is not running around to get out the door. Mom is not feeding the dogs. They have their undivided attention. It is everything that they want. If you think about it from that lens, it makes total sense. Um, and Amanda says, yes, we definitely don't feed them. <laughs> and also the other thing is it is it also makes sense that we kind of try to avoid dealing with it because we're yeah. exhausted. Oh. We don't want to start a whole thing at night. I just want to get my sleep. So like I'll let him come in and sleep here as well. And believe me, the sooner you deal with it, the better, because it may be now it's not a problem when they're 18, it's a problem, or even sometime between now and then a lot of times parents will come to me and say, well, we, we haven't slept in the same bed for years because our child who's getting older sleeps with mom or dad and the other parent now sleeps in the child's room. So, you know, try not to let it get to that point. It's, it's something our, our kids do learn to sleep in their own bed. Yeah, it takes time, though. Be patient with yourself. Uh, Paula wrote back to us and said that our teen with anxiety um, that doesn't like the socialization, uh, she said, thank you so much. He takes 20 milligrams of fluoxetine daily, only dose he can tolerate. His special interests are tumble dryers and road traffic signals, not your everyday interests. I sort of love that. And I'm wondering who else also is interested in that. But it's very specific. Yeah, absolutely. And fluoxetine is an anti-anxiety medication, which is antidepressant medication, which is great, very good. Um, and, you know, I, tumble dryers and road traffic signs, you have to find things that might be similar to that. Like, for instance, because he's interested in road traffic signs, I wonder if he's interested in stamp collecting. I don't know. But there are clubs that are you know, like offer him things, look around and see what types of clubs are out there Then offer him all those different ones and see if he gains interest. And because that's mechanical and because you brought up robotics before, I have to say, for those of you who don't know, there's something called first robotics that when kids are younger, there's Lego robotics, Mindstorm. A lot of schools are affiliated and a lot of pro like, you know, if you Google it, you'll find one that's close to you and they are international and they give away millions of dollars worth of scholarships every year for kids who are interested in that kind of thing. But in the meantime, there are clubs where it's like-minded kids and they teach them how to put together a robot to achieve a certain task. Now, it might be that, you know, he has to go in and see that, you know, if you do this, you can make the the tumbler tumble like the the dryer. But it's a I, I used to say all the time, I where where are all the kids who are doing better that, you know, that did therapies and where do they all go? Like, why don't I see them, Dr. Grampiche? Where are they? And then I went to the first robotics tournament with my son when he was in high school. And I remember texting you from it saying, I found them. They're all, and it was a stadium, you guys filled with parents like you with their teenage kids. And, and it's not just teenagers. They started age four with very basic tasks with Legos. 
And usually these programs are totally free. So I encourage you go to First Robotics, Google it and and see the different age groups. It's sponsored by NASA, for heaven's sake. Um, So anyway, uh, something to look at. And, and, and there are all different kinds of things that happen in robotics. So if your kid is like my son liked um, maintaining the machinery, he got more into that than anything else. But there are other kids who got into the marketing of the, the robot. And there are kids who got into the programming and kids who got into the building and kids who got into design. The and yeah, there's so yeah. many different aspects to it. And it's a team of people. So for, for us, it, it was the sports activity that my son engaged in. And there are competitions and you go to the competitions. Oh, and they yeah. oh my gosh, it was more fun than you could shake a stick at. Um, and you travel if that's a, we, we went to Las Vegas and it's a, it's like a three-day tournament that we, my husband and I went with our son. We will never, ever forget it. It's so much fun. So I encourage you guys to check that out. And they're very, they love our kids yeah. because our tend to be good at this. So um, just as a possibility to try, they even sell those Mindstorm robots so that you can do it at home first. They're a little expensive. Try to find one that's used. Um, In any case, I'll move on. Uh, Kahinde says, my son is always agitating and restless, 21 years old, and he has to be on Risperidol uh, treatment six years now. Please, what we'll do? I want to stop the tablet. Advice, please. Yeah. So um, I'll answer that. And then Shannon, I don't want us to forget Paula had written in a question a little bit. Was it Paula or no, I I saw Ellen. Ellen had written about her ASD twins. So I don't want to miss that either. But yes, um, Risperdal is not going to necessarily, I mean, I don't know that that is the medication that you should be concerned about right now. Um, I think that if he is always restless, you should be looking at maybe guanfacine or another type of medication for ADHD. So I would actually go back and get a uh, uh, an evaluation. So, and I don't know what country you're in, but a lot of times, because you know, in the U.S., for instance, Risperdal is one of the very, very, very few medications that have been approved for autism. And so, a physician who's not an expert will just give you Risperdal, and and it basically is not really dealing with much. It's just kind of like making your child. It's an antipsychotic medication, so it's basically going to just numb all responses. It's going to reduce all responses, but. If, you, if it's agitation and restlessness, you might be looking at hyperactivity. And then you have a whole array of other medications that could help, which really you should evaluate and consider. The other thing is, you know, let's not forget that the most effective treatment for any kind of ADHD as well is to be in a program that is behavioral and that keeps you very occupied and focused. So I don't know how he's spending his time, but it would be very good if he had a structured uh, educational program where someone is working with him and keeping him kind of organized, structured, busy, learning things that are very useful to him throughout the day. And that really will probably help with the agitation as more than anything. 
There we go. I, I'm so glad you brought up Ellen's question because Ellen, I totally missed it. But here we are. My ASD twins are 22 and right. need to start work programs. They both live in residential facilities. My son's regional center social worker is on top of it. But my daughter's is lagging even when I call or email her weekly. Should I ask to speak to her supervisor? I don't want my daughter just sitting at home all day. Oh my gosh, loving this mom so much. And you know, you're fortunate to be in a situation where you actually have someone to compare to. Um, And so, yes, I would absolutely speak to her supervisor. Uh, I assume they're in different residential facilities, one for girls, one for boys, and that you don't have access to the same uh, uh, social worker who's working on your son's case. But yeah, don't hesitate. Uh, it's really, really important. And honestly, there's a wide variety of people out there. So always insist on what you feel is is right. Listen to your intuition. As I say this to parents across the board, no matter what you're doing, whether it's ABA, speech, OT, residential supervisor, school teacher, school, whatever it is, listen to your intuition because no one's paying attention to your child's particular responses as much as you are. So if things are not going well, if you have a bad feeling about it, don't let it go. Keep poking, keep prodding, keep figuring out what's going on until you get your child into a place and, and or a treatment facility that you feel is appropriate. Amen, Dr. Grand Pichet. Uh, let's slip in from Abigail. Dr. Doreen, I have a question. My son is four years old and has a full, has a half day of school, ABA at school one-to-one, and then has ABA at home for five and a half hours. This next year, the school would give us a full day in the fall for preschool, but I don't know that that would be a, a benefit more, uh, what would be more beneficial? Full day of school or a half of school and half at home with ABA, what would you suggest P.S. Next fall, 2023, he'd start kindergarten. I think I like the half and half more. And I'll kind of tell you why. I mean, first, two reasons. One is that I never want to really put my eggs all in one basket. Like, I don't know. Like, what if, you know, the staff at school change and then you don't have good people anymore and now it's your child's entire day or whatever it is. Or, and the people at school are going to be very academic focused, and that's not all we want, right? We want our kids to learn a whole variety of things that have to do with adaptive functioning, like, you know, hygiene and how to take care of himself at home, how to get dressed, how to socialize, how to uh, go to the mall, how to, you know, uh, buy something, a million different things. So I think I like the idea of half and half better because you'll be able to get a lot of those things from your outside ABA provider. Um, and then the combination and, and, you know, please make sure of course that you have at least once a month, a meeting where everyone attends everyone or at very minimum, the supervisors of both teams, because you really, when you have two programs running, you really, really want to make sure there's consistency. And that's a big problem because sometimes one environment will accept things that are already mastered in the other one. So they're kind of wasting time. Everyone needs to be on the same page 
and pushing at the same level using similar levels of reinforcers. Um, and the goals all have to kind of be shared. So make sure you do that. And then I would probably keep two programs rather than one. And I love that advice and agree with it. And can I say one of the reasons why, in addition to everything else that you've said, is that, you know, I look at my son who sometimes has a hard time making a decision. Um, like, you know, I'll say, do you want to do this? And sometimes that's the hardest thing for him because he's he's like, oh, but if I do this, then I don't get that. And yeah. what's what I try to do for him sometimes is to say definitively, well, you know, you have a choice between going to the movies or seeing your friend who's in from out of town. And here's the thing for the movie thing. We can always go to the movie tomorrow. The friend who's in from out of town, you can only do right now. And that makes it easier because it's like, oh, well, there's, you know, this thing I can always do. And this other thing, I have a limited opportunity to do it. And that, that doing ABA intensively at home is a limited opportunity. Like I know so many parents who their child goes six and they go, oh, I should have done that. I'd like to do it now. And good luck. Like that's a hard time. It's not impossible, but it's a hard climb. Whereas school's going to be available and, and preschool is like, I love preschool. I'm very fond of preschool. I think it's good to have some hours where they can apply the things as Dr. Grampiche was saying, but that opportunity to do the ABA intensively and get that one-on-one focused while their brains are still so, you know, open to so many things, you're not going to get that opportunity again. It's true. And also Shannon, like, you know, I don't know of any schools that do pure ABA, like they're using ABA techniques in the classroom. That's not the same as doing the one-to-one intensive that Shannon is talking about. And the other thing you just made me realize, Shannon, is that God forbid one day one of your sources stops funding it. Yes. You don't, you want to have the other source. So make sure you have both. You're using your private ABA through health insurance and then your school district so that it, you continue to have both. And I, and I feel like enough people don't know that your ABA, your intensive ABA and the funding for that, it's a limited time. And as it's much as it's supposed to be, I mean, legally, I know. legally, it's not supposed to be right. Legally, no, uh, you don't. States don't have the, the right to cut you off based on your child's age. But they do. As Shannon said, the intensive stuff cuts off. I mean, it becomes extremely difficult to get intensive therapies funded after, let's say, age eight. Right. Because the research, unfortunately, always focused on younger children. So a lot of health insurance uh, providers will look at the research and say, oh, there's not enough research to show that adults benefit from ABA. There is. There's tons, but not intensive. So they'll fund some hours, but really, as Shannon said, the intensive stuff becomes harder and harder to get as your child gets older. And we are like almost out of time here. So I'm just going to say, Amanda wrote in and said, I watched an old episode from nine years ago of Ask Dr. Doreen and heard one of my questions that Dr. Doreen answered. My son turned 14 yesterday. That's how long you guys have been helping me. Thank you with her blue hearts. That's amazing. Happy birthday to your son. I'm also um, sending a big hug to I am one um, and that we love you and hopefully you will learn over time that you're amazing exactly the way you are. Um, and we didn't get to everybody's questions. I apologize. Um, but we do the best that we can. Dr. Grampy Shea, we love you. 
Thank you, Shannon, so much. And I just saw I am one's uh, messages, and I want to ask you to please come on our show again and keep asking your questions and talk to us because we will be part of that tribe for you as well. And we will help you get through um, the stuff that you're going, the struggles that you're getting through, that you're going through right now. I completely understand what you're saying. It, it is not unusual to feel alone even though you have a group of people around you who are also on the spectrum. But keep coming back to this show. We talk to a lot of folks on this show who have the diagnosis of autism. And I want to make sure we provide you the support that you need right now. There we go. Uh, that's why she is who she is, Dr. Doreen, right? Um, but we appreciate all of you guys. Hey, tomorrow on the show, we have an amazing accountant who is himself someone he identifies as being on the spectrum and he's helping a lot of teens and adults to learn how to handle their money and, and what to do with their money in a way that speaks to those on the spectrum. So uh, I am one come be a part of that conversation as well. We're really looking forward to having him with us. We're going to take on those money issues. And this is great. By the way, you know, he likes to deal with teenagers and adults, but he says that what he teaches is very effective. If you at some if you have a three year old, they're going to be thirteen at some point. So yeah. in any case, uh, come and join us tomorrow. We'll be back then. Until then, give your kiddos a hug for me and one for you too. Thank you, Dr. Grandy Shea. Bye, Bye everyone. Bye. See you soon.